Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of material that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. One morning in the fall of 1970, a homeless 19-year-old girl in Los Angeles passed by a vegetarian restaurant on Sunset Boulevard. In front of the restaurant stood a man with flowing silver hair and a beard, dressed in long white robes and surrounded by young people all in white. Curious, the girl later telephoned the restaurant, which was called The Source, and learned that the people she had seen were taking a meditation class from the restaurant's owner. That night, she hitchhiked through the canyons at 1 a.m. to reach The Source in time for the 4 a.m. class the next morning. The class ended at dawn. Afterward, one of the workers took the girl inside to meet the restaurant's owner, the bearded man she had seen teaching the day before. The man, introduced to her only as father, looked the breathless teenager over. He told her she was finally home. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults on the Parcast Network. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. Today's episode is the first of a two-part series on the Source family, a young, free-spirited group of California hippies led by the charismatic but dangerous man known as Father Yod. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merch. Head to Parcast.com slash merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Cults, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. Los Angeles, California has long been considered the entertainment capital of the world. But according to experts, L.A. has another claim to fame, as the city that has historically been home to the highest number of cults in the nation. No cult has better captured the California spirit than the Source family, a Los Angeles-based cult in the early 1970s that formed around vegetarian restaurant owner James Edward Baker. Jim Baker, known to his followers as Father Yod and later as Yehovah, was a powerfully charismatic man who practiced kundalini yoga and promoted an all-organic vegetarian diet as a means to perfect health. He was also far from your stereotypical hippie. Baker was a decorated World War II veteran, a jiu-jitsu expert, and a former stuntman known to have killed at least two men with his bare hands. Baker's wild background, combined with his passion for organic cuisine, became a powerful draw for his employees and patrons, many of whom came to the source seeking more than just a meal. 
In the soul-searching spirit of the 60s and 70s, they looked to Baker for hidden truths that would help them transcend their mundane and problematic lives. From 1969 to 1975, over 150 people gave up their belongings, their families, even their names to become part of Jim Baker's psychedelic source family. On the surface, they were setting themselves on a path to enlightenment, but deep down, they were really submitting themselves to Baker's control. This week, we'll investigate Jim Baker the man, his life, his psyche, and his rise as psychedelic guru, Father Yod. In part two, we'll broaden our focus from Baker to the cult he founded, a robe-wearing, rock-playing, raw food-eating commune known as the Source Family. We'll learn about several members of the cult and how their blind faith in Baker's philosophies led some to drug abuse, mandatory sex rituals, even death. The man who would one day be known as Father Yod was born James Edward Baker on the 4th of July in 1922. Baker was born in Cincinnati, Ohio, to homemaker Cora and firefighter Jim Baker, who abandoned the family when Jim Jr. was only six months old. Jim's mother, Cora, was thus left to support herself and an infant, which she managed by working as a housekeeper in Cincinnati. However, in 1929, when Baker was seven years old, the stock market crashed, leading to the worldwide financial crisis known as the Great Depression. It began to decline precipitously, almost on an uninterrupted basis, until it reached the Depression low on July 8, 1932. During the Depression, jobs of any kind were extremely hard to come by. Baker's mother was forced to move with her son from town to town just to earn enough money to survive. What's more, Baker himself had to take odd jobs to make ends meet. Most of these jobs involved tough physical labor, which Baker later credited with helping develop his physique. He claimed that at age 12, he was nationally recognized as America's strongest boy, a claim which, given his physical feats later in life, may well be true. True or not, the story indicates that Baker was determined to put a positive spin on his early life. But things may not have been as rosy as he claimed. Between his father's abandonment and the itinerant lifestyle he and his mother endured, Baker may have suffered more deeply than he later let on. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note that although she is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. According to psychologists Shige Oishi and Ulrich Schimak, children who move frequently at a young age tend to exhibit greater signs of psychological disturbance later in life. They perform less well in school and report more behavioral problems than their peers from more stable homes. Interestingly, psychologists Richard L. Jenkins and Andrew Boyer have shown these same characteristics to be common among boys who grow up without fathers. Male children in fatherless homes have a higher tendency to engage in delinquent behavior, such as truancy, assault, and defiance of authority. As we'll hear later in this episode, Baker exhibited all three of these types of behavior throughout his life. So it's safe to assume that he was deeply affected both by moving a lot and by the absence of his father. 
Baker seems to have been aware of his paternal longings, and to some extent, he learned to cope with them in a positive way. According to Source family member and historian Isis Aquarian, in her book The Source, The Untold Story of Father Yod, Yehovah 13, and the Source family, Baker spent much of his life searching for a surrogate father. That search led him to various father figures, whose philosophies he absorbed and identities he mimicked in an effort to shape his own. Baker's first major father figure was nationally known health food advocate Paul Bragg, the founder of Bragg Live Food Products, best known today for their liquid aminos. Paul was also a bodybuilder who traveled the nation in the 1930s, giving lectures on the health benefits of an organic vegetarian diet. These days, the idea that eating fresh, organic foods leads to better health is pretty widely accepted. But in the 1930s, when many Americans were concerned about simply getting enough to eat, it was considered a radical belief. And Bragg took that belief even further. He began claiming that all illness could be cured by eating the right foods. This led some to consider Bragg as a con man and led the teenage baker to consider him a sage. At the age of 14, Jim Baker contracted a case of hemorrhoids so severe that doctors recommended surgery. Instead of following their recommendations, Baker sought out the famous Paul Bragg and invited him to visit the Baker's home. Bragg accepted the invitation, and while he was there, he laid out a diet that he believed would cure the young Baker's hemorrhoids. The diet was basically low-fat and high-fiber, commonly prescribed today, but in 1936, it was revolutionary. Baker's hemorrhoids cleared up, and from that point on, Baker became an avid follower of Bragg's teachings. Baker adopted a vegetarian diet, along with Bragg's belief that all illness could be cured by eating the right foods. This belief would one day become the cornerstone of Baker's successful restaurants and of the Source family cult. In 1938, 16-year-old Baker joined the Civilian Conservation Corps. This program was established during the Depression to create jobs by funding public works projects, such as bridges, dams, and forestry projects. It was the perfect opportunity for the athletic and adventurous young Baker to strike out on his own. For the next three years, Baker traveled all over the West, putting his youthful energy to good use in productive outdoor labor. Eventually, he found work at a printing plant in Chicago, where in 1941, at age 19, he married the printer's daughter, Margaret. Most of what we know of Baker's early years comes from anecdotes he told his followers decades later. Apparently, he didn't say much about Margaret, and as a result, we know very little about her or about their relationship. We do know, however, that they had a daughter together in 1941, the same year that they were married. It's safe to assume that Baker, whose life was so strongly affected by the abandonment of his own father, aspired to be a better father himself. But Baker's first attempt at domestic life was cut short in December 1941, when a conflict that had been raging overseas suddenly struck home. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. On December 7, 1941, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, bringing the United States officially into World War II. Moved by a sense of patriotism and probably a sense of adventure, the 19-year-old Baker enlisted in the Marines. 
Baker's time in the military was a formative experience. While stationed on the Pacific island of Guadalcanal, he developed an interest in Eastern cultures, studying martial arts such as judo and jujitsu. He became an expert in both these styles and served as a judo instructor in the Marines. Baker also began to show signs of an aggressive temper. While at Guadalcanal, he got into a fight with the commanding officer and ended up punching the officer in the face. This resulted in Baker being placed in the brig, or the ship's jail. However, in an interesting twist of fate, Guadalcanal was attacked while Baker was in custody on January 29, 1943, in what came to be known as the Battle of Rennell. Baker's ship was bombed by Japanese fighter planes, and Baker was released from the brig to abandon ship. Baker disobeyed orders, choosing instead to remain on deck and commandeer the anti-aircraft guns. He shot down 13 Japanese planes before his own ship sank, an action which earned him a silver star, the third highest personal decoration awarded for valor in combat. In 1945, following the Japanese surrender, Baker returned to his wife and child in Chicago. Baker was 23 by this time, and with a silver star and an impressive work record, there was little preventing him from getting a good job. But instead of settling down into a career that would have provided for his family, Baker began jumping from activity to activity, opening a gym, acting in plays, and competing in jujitsu. Suffice it to say, this desultory lifestyle was not exactly the blueprint for a stable home life. The turbulence reached a peak around 1948, when at age 26, Baker abandoned Margaret and their daughter and drove to Los Angeles on a motorcycle to audition for the film franchise role of Tarzan. Given how deeply affected Baker had been by his own father's abandonment, this may seem like a strange thing to do. But according to author Dennis Balcom, Baker's behavior actually made sense. The absence of a father figure can have severe repercussions on the adult son's capacity for intimacy. He writes, quote, For many abandoned sons, the realization of intimacy is a mystery that eludes them. Once committed or married, abandoned sons can unwittingly replicate the roles enacted by their fathers by being emotionally or physically absent, end quote. This hadn't been a problem for Baker before, because he'd only lived with his wife and daughter a few short months before the war. But once he came back, he had to commit to a long-term intimate relationship, and being abandoned by his own dad had left him ill-equipped to do so. It's important to note how Baker responded to these problems in his relationship. He could have gone to counseling or reached out to his mother for advice. Instead, he ran away. This hints at a tendency toward escapism, a tendency Baker displayed throughout his life. Despite Baker's fighting skills and impressive physique, at 6'3", Baker stood about half a foot taller than the average man of his era. He failed to impress in the Tarzan auditions and didn't get the part. But during the audition process, he met a beautiful design artist named Elaine, who convinced him to stay in Los Angeles. They were married six weeks later. Despite the whirlwind turnaround, Baker's marriage to Elaine became a relatively stable union, by far the longest lasting relationship of Baker's life. The couple were drawn to a peaceful, spiritual lifestyle in communion with nature. They settled in the woodsy Topanga Canyon area, where Baker supported them by making leather belts and sandals by hand. Baker and Elaine also shared an interest in countercultural philosophies, such as Eastern mysticism and the occult. 
As we mentioned earlier in the episode, Los Angeles has historically been home to many soul searchers with similar interests, and chief among them in the 50s was renowned philosopher and occult expert Manly P. Hall. Elaine introduced Baker to Hall's writings around 1950, and Baker was so fascinated by his ideas that he began to see Hall as another surrogate father. Just as he had tracked down Paul Bragg 15 years before, Baker sought out Hall at his library in the idyllic L.A. neighborhood of Los Feliz and literally sat at Hall's feet in a sign of obeisance to his new mentor. One of Hall's ideas, which had a profound effect on Baker, was the astrological concept of the Age of Aquarius, which denotes a 2,160-year period of enlightenment that will supposedly occur when the vernal equinox moves into the constellation of Aquarius. Astrologers disagree on exactly when the so-called Aquarian Age begins, but Hall believed it was on the verge of starting in the 1950s, an idea which led Baker and many others to think of the 60s and 70s as an age of enlightenment. The second of Hall's ideas that would one day inform Baker's teachings was the idea that God has a name, and that name contains inherent power. Many cultures have held this belief, but for Baker, The most intriguing version of it was the Hebrew belief that God's true name is Yahweh, written in Hebrew with four letters, Yud, He, Vav, and He. Hall believed those letters had divine power, and Baker would seek to tap into that power by using various combinations of the letters as his own name later in life. In 1955, however, Baker was still a long way from calling himself by God's name. He and Elaine were simply joining in the spirit of mind expansion that was beginning to pervade L.A. in the 1950s. But these innocent times were not to last. On November 6, 1955, when Baker was 33, his aggressive nature reared its head again. He got into an argument with one of his Topanga Canyon neighbors over the poor treatment of the neighbor's dog. The argument grew so heated that, according to police reports, the neighbor threatened Baker with a knife. In response, Baker threw the man into a gully and struck him with a series of judo chops, killing him. Presumably, this was not the first time Jim Baker had killed a man, since he had shot down 13 planes during the war, and a jury quickly declared it self-defense. Nevertheless, Baker seems to have been affected by the killing in a way he hadn't been during the war. Baker threw himself into healing studies and dedicated himself to finding a connection between nature, food, and total wellness. Finally, in 1957, Baker and Elaine fostered this connection together when they opened their first restaurant, the Aware Inn on Sunset Boulevard. The Aware Inn was the culmination of everything Baker had studied up to this point, organic foods, esoteric philosophies, and the promise of perfect health. It was also the place that would launch Baker on a path of transformation from California hippie to the leader of the hottest cult in town. Coming up, we'll see how this transformation began. Now back to the story. In 1957, Jim and Elaine Baker opened the Aware Inn on Sunset Boulevard, located across the street from Tower Records and the infamous Viper Room nightclub, It was considered the first all-organic restaurant in the nation. 
The Aware Inn became a huge hit among Hollywood's health-conscious elite. Notable patrons such as Greta Garbo, Marlon Brando, and Steve McQueen frequented the cafe. And before long, Jim Baker became a celebrity himself. Elaine designed the restaurant and worked behind the scenes. Baker made the recipes, cooked, and worked the floor in the afternoons. He took to the last of these tasks brilliantly, now in his late 30s, with thick, wavy hair and striking blue eyes, Baker was both good-looking and outgoing, and he loved sharing his passion for organic food with others. And that wasn't the only passion he liked sharing. As the male owner of one of Hollywood's hottest new restaurants, Baker attracted the attention of many a rising starlet. And despite the fact that he and Elaine were both marriage and business partners, Baker gave in to temptation like a kid with two helpings of dessert. Not even Baker himself kept track of how many extramarital affairs he had from the time the Aware Inn opened in 1957 until he and Elaine divorced eight years later. But one of the many liaisons stands out, not because of the woman, but because of what happened when her husband found out. In late 1962, Baker began sleeping with an actress named Jean Ingram, Ingram was separated from her husband at the time, but apparently, as far as the husband was concerned, they were still an exclusive couple. When Ingram's husband found out that she was sleeping with Baker, he decided to take action. On January 29, 1963, he barged into Baker's office at the Aware Inn with a gun. The details of what happened next are a little fuzzy. According to news reports, there was a struggle. The gun went off, and Ingram's husband got shot. He also took a couple of judo chops to the back of the head. It's not clear whether the chops or the bullet killed him. Either way, this was the second time Baker had ended a fight by killing a man. And this time, he didn't get off so easily. He was charged with manslaughter and jailed for five months until the charges were dismissed in June of 1963. One might think that Baker's popularity would wane while he was on trial for murder. But this was Hollywood, after all. The charges made Baker an even bigger celebrity. Business at the Aware Inn skyrocketed. In 1965, Baker and Elaine capitalized on their success and bought a second restaurant called The Old World just down the street. Like its predecessor, The Old World was a success. However, Baker's marriage to Elaine continued to suffer. The extramarital affairs soon began again, and this time, Elaine decided that she'd had enough. In late 1965, after 17 years of marriage, Jim and Elaine Baker divorced. Elaine took the aware in, and Baker kept the old world. But he didn't keep it long. The recent breakup deeply affected Baker, despite the fact that it seems to have been mostly his fault. In 1966, at age 43, he decided to fly to Samoa to find himself. Baker later claimed that while he was in Samoa, he met a native tribe that was suffering from a diet of processed foods imported from the United States. Baker helped place the tribe on an organic, mostly raw food diet, thereby saving the life of the tribal chief's daughter. This story is virtually impossible to verify. According to Baker, the tribal chief gave him the hand of his newly healed daughter in marriage. But after a few months on Samoan beaches, Baker grew bored and abandoned his third wife, if she ever existed, to go back to L.A. A few months later, he met and fell in love with a patron of the old world named Dora, 
a 19-year-old French girl who epitomized the 60s lifestyle of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Baker was 45 years old when he and Dora met, and she took his world by storm. For one thing, Dora was just as into free love as Baker had been during his marriage to Elaine. Former Source family member Isis Aquarian wrote that Baker and Dora had a clawfoot bathtub in the center of their apartment, and Dora used to bathe in it while Baker was holding business meetings there with other men. Dora was also an enthusiastic advocate of mind-altering drug use, and with her encouragement, Baker became addicted to drugs and alcohol. He began stealing from his own cash register at the Old World to feed his various addictions. In late 1967, one of the investors in the Old World got wind of the fact that Baker was stealing from the register and hired a private investigator to look into it. When Baker found out he was under investigation, he responded by selling the restaurant and running off with Dora to Mexico. This marks the third example we've seen of Baker's escapist behavior, and it won't be the last. Back in 1948, Baker responded to difficulties in his first marriage by running off to L.A. on a motorcycle. In 1965, he responded to the stress of his divorce from Elaine by flying to Samoa. Now, in 1967, he was running away from his problems again, with little concern for what or whom he was leaving behind. University of Wisconsin professor John L. Longeway describes escapism as an attempt to, quote, keep beliefs one does not like out of consciousness, and should they enter consciousness, to distract one from them or put them out of mind, end quote. In other words, quite literally trying to run from your problems. Clearly, Jim Baker was a physically brave man, ready to face life-threatening dangers head-on. Yet, when confronted with more complex relational problems, he went to extreme lengths to avoid them, a tendency which would create serious trouble for his followers down the line. Two things happened while Baker and Dora were in Mexico that would soon lead to Baker's spiritual transformation. First, the 45-year-old Baker and 19-year-old Dora got married a decision which, in retrospect, may not have been the best choice for the two serial adulterers. Baker also appears to have revived his interest in spirituality while he and Dora were in Mexico. Unlike Elaine, Dora had never shown much interest in Baker's mystic side, so his studies in spirituality had lapsed during the past two years. However, in 1968, perhaps inspired by his time abroad, Baker returned to Los Angeles with new energy and a new idea. In the spring of 1968, Baker met a man on a hiking trail near Los Angeles named Ray Feldman. He regaled this perfect stranger with stories about his lifelong spiritual journey, stories that probably included concepts he had learned from Manly P. Hall. Among these concepts was a belief in the Essene Gospel of Peace. This obscure text was supposedly written by Essene monks, an ascetic sect that lived on the shores of the Dead Sea during the days when Jesus Christ was alive. Legend has it that the text was lost inside the Vatican Library until it was rediscovered and translated from ancient Aramaic by Hungarian philosopher Edmund Bardot Seke in 1923. And what Seke discovered upon translating the text was that it contained first-hand quotes from Jesus' disciples, proving that Jesus Christ taught vegetarianism. 
In reality, the origins of the Essene Gospel are highly suspect, and it seems unlikely that any of Jesus' contemporaries quoted him on vegetarian beliefs. Nevertheless, Baker's retelling of the story was so convincing that Feldman gave Baker $35,000, over $250,000 by today's standards, to open a new restaurant with recipes inspired by the secret vegetarian teachings of Jesus Christ. The Source opened on April 1st, 1969. It could be described as the Aware In 2.0. Like Baker's first restaurant, The Source was located in a high-traffic area on the Sunset Strip and building on the concept of an all-organic menu. It offered all vegetarian, mostly raw food items. Baker's New Age philosophies pervaded the place. It was designed with an indoor waterfall, candles burning in a fireplace, and Zen music playing on the speakers. Servers were chosen specifically for their aesthetic appeal, young, attractive flower children whose flowing hair and bright faces advertised the holistic vegetarian lifestyle. Baker's track record with the old world didn't bode well for the source's success, and the source might have gone just the same way if not for two key events that took place right after he opened it. The first of these events was that Dora left. More of a party girl than a businesswoman, Dora had no interest in running a restaurant and took off on an extended vacation to France, right when Baker needed her the most. Baker responded by illegally marrying another woman in her absence, a young Sufi named Mila. And if that weren't crazy enough, Dora, too, married someone else while she was abroad. One can only imagine the scene when Dora came back to Los Angeles, possibly to tell Baker she had met someone and found him already married to someone else. Baker's new wife was outraged to meet Dora, so much so that she had her marriage to Baker annulled. Then Dora's new husband found out about Baker and had his marriage with Dora annulled. Dora, newly ditched by her French husband, officially divorced Baker. And for the first time since he was 19, the 47-year-old Jim Baker found himself alone. Beyond its comedic finale, what's fascinating about this incident is how Baker interpreted it afterwards. He had illegally married another woman in Dora's absence, yet he felt until his dying day that Dora had abandoned him. And according to the Source family's historian, Isis, Baker never got over it. Maybe that was why he found himself in such a vulnerable place the night he met his third and final surrogate father, Yogi Bhajan. This meeting was the second event that came from opening the Source restaurant, and it would lead to Baker's final transformation. Yogi Bhajan was a Pakistani Sikh who traveled the world in the 1960s teaching the practice of kundalini yoga. Distinguished from other forms of yoga by its emphasis on the central nervous system, kundalini uses meditation, chanting, and controlled breathing exercises to release spiritual energy, thought to originate at the base of the spine. Bhajan combined the practice of kundalini yoga with Sikh traditions, such as a vegetarian diet, avoidance of drugs and alcohol, and a style of dress that included long, flowing robes and a white turban. Starting in the late 60s, 
Bajan picked up a few Western ideologies as well. In 1969, he came to America on a green card procured by one of his students, rock and roll legend Johnny Rivers. At the time, Rivers was playing with a group called The Fifth Dimension, which had a hit song called Aquarius, Let the Sunshine In. Yogi Bhajan liked the idea of a dawning Aquarian age and incorporated it into his teaching. Thus, he developed a unique blend of yoga, Sikhism, and Western astrology that resonated with everything Baker had been studying since he was a child. It was a master-disciple match made in heaven. But within a year, Baker's experiences with Bhajan would set him and his followers on a path toward a living hell. Coming up, we'll walk the road to hell. Now back to the story. In May of 1969, about a month after opening the Source restaurant, 47-year-old Jim Baker attended a party that would change the trajectory of his life forever. What seemed to be a run-of-the-mill shindig at the home of a vegetarian cookbook author took a turn when the hostess introduced her special guest, world-famous kundalini master Yogi Bhajan. Baker regarded this so-called master with competitive disdain. Through his years as a popular restaurant owner, Baker had become used to being the center of attention. But tonight, the bearded, turban-wearing Yogi Bhajan was getting all the looks, and Baker didn't like it. If this party had taken place a few weeks earlier, Baker might have had a wife or two to keep him company. But now he was alone, which seems to have contributed to his decision to make a hasty exit. As Baker was leaving the party, however, he felt a hand on his arm. The famous Yogi Bhajan had reached out to stop him. According to Isis Aquarian, Bhajan looked Baker deep in the eyes and said, quote, Son, I'm holding meditation in the morning and I want you to come. End quote. Isis claims the word son had a life-altering impact on Baker. And based on how he behaved next, that seems to be the case. Baker immediately began attending Bhajan's yoga and meditation classes on a daily basis. Although he had studied religion and spirituality for decades, Baker had never professed an adherence to any one belief system. But within months of meeting Bhajan, he converted to Sikhism, began growing out his hair and beard, and started dressing in all-white robes in solidarity with his master. We've seen Baker behave like this with his previous two surrogate fathers— immersing himself in their philosophies and adopting their beliefs. But with Bajan, Baker went even further, and he began claiming that Bajan was the father of the coming new age and had cards placed on all the tables at the Source restaurant, declaring that Yogi Bajan was God. This was a fascinating display of devotion by a man who, within less than a year, would become the leader of his own cult. And the intensity of his behavior suggests that something deeper was at play. Baker's devotion to Bajan developed at lightning speed and in the wake of what he considered to be abandonment by his wife, Dora. Taken together, these two facts may indicate that Baker was experiencing some form of reactive attachment disorder. According to the American Psychiatric Association, reactive attachment disorder is a trauma disorder that develops out of feelings of parental abandonment during early childhood. 
Symptoms include impulsivity, lacking a sense of belonging, and an inability to develop and maintain significant relationships. Because it can only be diagnosed between nine months and five years of age, a time in Baker's life when his mother certainly didn't have the means to take him to a psychiatrist, we don't know whether Baker actually had reactive attachment disorder, but it would help explain his almost obsessive need for connection. Yogi Bhajan responded to Baker's overzealousness by attempting to set boundaries. First, he sent men to the source to remove all the cards Baker had placed there, proclaiming that Bhajan was God. This turned out to be ineffective, as Baker replaced the cards the next day. So Bhajan upped the stakes, banning Baker from his ashram. Baker responded by breaking in overnight, then waiting for Bhajan to arrive for meditation the next morning. This situation might quickly have spiraled out of control if it weren't for the fact that Baker's need for attachment soon found relief in a young woman named Robin Popper. Baker met Robin in the summer of 69, about three months after Dora divorced him. Baker was 47 years old. Robin was 19 and enjoyed hanging out at the source wearing nothing but a white bikini. Like Dora, Robin was a wild child, a hard-partying Hollywood nymphet who enjoyed drugs and rock and roll. Unlike her predecessor, however, Robin was not attracted to Baker. He asked her out over and over, and Robin repeatedly turned him down, saying he was too old. As with Yogi Bhajan, Baker showed little respect for Robin's boundaries and lacked awareness of how to build an appropriate relationship. He began following Robin in his car down Sunset Boulevard, calling to her out the window and begging her to go out with him. Some might have reported Baker to the police for stalking, but the 19-year-old Robin decided to handle things differently, a decision which would drastically alter the course of her life. On August 8, 1969, Robin was strolling down Sunset on her way to meet up with a friend. Baker began following her down the street in his car, saying if she didn't go out with him, he would never leave her alone. Robin made Baker a deal. She would go out with him that night if he would promise not to ask her again. Baker agreed, and Robin went out with him instead of going to see her friend. In a bizarre twist of fate, that friend turned out to be the pregnant actress Sharon Tate. Later that night, on August 8, 1969, followers of the infamous cult leader Charles Manson broke into Sharon Tate's house, murdering Tate and everyone else inside. When Robin saw the news the next morning, she was terrified. If not for Baker, she would have been murdered too. Robin's fear and shock sent her running back to the man she had tried to reject less than 24 hours before. And although we don't know exactly what took place between them, we do know that both of them were transformed as a result. Robin became Baker's lover and his first dedicated follower. She was convinced that by preventing her from going to Sharon Tate's house that night, Baker had shown evidence that he possessed miraculous powers, and she believed he should share those powers with the world. Robin and Baker were married in May of 1970, and that same month, she convinced him to begin teaching Sunday meditation classes at The Source. This was not only the beginning of Baker's teaching career, it was also the very beginning of the Source family. Baker's students attended his classes on Sunday mornings and either worked or hung out at the restaurant all during the week. While it may not have been Baker's intention, 
This gave him a tremendous amount of power over their lives. According to psychologist Robert J. Lifton, cults begin with thought reform, and the most basic feature of thought reform is control of an individual's environment. As the owner of the Source restaurant, Baker had literally created the environment in which many of his employees already spent six days a week. By adding meditation classes on the seventh day, their only day off, Baker was virtually ensuring that his philosophies became the dominant psychological force in his workers' minds. Initially, the Sunday meditation classes were repetitions of classes Baker had taken from Yogi Bhajan. Baker continued to refer to Bhajan as the earthly spiritual father and taught his mentor style of meditation and kundalini yoga. However, it soon became clear to Baker that his students saw him as more than a middleman. They began to dress like Baker in flowing white clothes and headdresses. Some of them started addressing Baker as father. Almost independent of Baker's wishes, a cult was forming around him. And as he realized this, Baker's relationship with Yogi Bhajan began to change. Baker became less subservient to Bhajan and more critical of his teachings. Although he still attended the yogi's classes, he didn't feel the desperate need for Bhajan's wisdom that he had only a few months before. Then one day in the early fall of 1970, Baker experienced a revelation. He was teaching a Sunday meditation class, leading his students in a chant that he had learned from Yogi Bhajan, when a thought entered his head, a thought unrelated to the exercise. In many forms of meditation, practitioners aim to clear their minds of individual thoughts. Ideas are perceived as intrusive and disruptive to the enlightenment process. So for Baker, who had disciplined himself to perform exactly according to his master's instructions, this thought was unwelcome at first. But then Baker began to wonder what would happen if, instead of casting his thought away, he embraced it. He decided to find out. Acting on his impulse, Baker called for his students to stand up in the position of the five-pointed star. They obeyed him. He then called for the students to do a breathing exercise for 108 counts. They did that too. For the first time, Jim Baker realized that his students weren't just here to learn the teachings of Yogi Bhajan. They were here because of him. Baker could tell these young, impressionable people to do whatever came into his mind and they would obey him unquestioningly. This was the beginning of Baker's transformation from yogic disciple into controlling cult leader. But it was only the beginning. Baker's psyche was still in a stage of flux, and it would take one more revelation for him to settle into his new identity. By the fall of 1970, change was once again on Baker's horizon. Although business was booming at the source, the restaurant had been poorly managed, both by Baker and by the managerial staff he had chosen. As a result, only a year and a half after opening, the source restaurant was nearly bankrupt. Baker, true to form, responded to this difficult problem by running away. In December of 1970, he decided to leave his wife Robin and the restaurant and travel to India to visit Yogi Bhajan. This was odd, given that he and Bajan had been drifting apart, but it was in keeping with his usual escapist behavior. Baker left town, proclaiming that the source would no longer be there when he got back. And things certainly did change while he was away, but not as he predicted. The first change was in Baker himself. 
While in India, he decided once and for all that he didn't need a spiritual father. He was a spiritual father. Baker described the transformation like a scene from sacred literature. According to him, he was on a boat in India, dressed in the white robe and headdress he had adopted upon converting to Sikhism a year or so before. A man on the boat asked Baker if he was Sikh or Hindu. Baker responded by throwing his headdress into the river and proclaiming that he was neither Hindu nor Sikh. His soul was free. According to Baker, the Indian passengers fell at his feet and began calling him a holy man. While this story was almost certainly exaggerated, if not pure fiction, it nevertheless gives us a clear sense of Baker's state of mind upon his return from India. As we've already seen, Baker's views on his role in the world changed frequently throughout his life. The anecdote about throwing his headdress into the river shows that he was once again transforming into someone new. Yet, this time was different than all the others. Baker was changing from a man seeking answers to the man who had them all, an omniscient guru with a direct link to God. Psychoanalyst Anthony Storr describes such a person as, quote, a spiritual teacher whose insight is based on personal revelation, often taking the form of a vision understood to come directly from a deity. The revelation, which has transformed his life, generally follows upon a period of distress or illness in his 30s or 40s. There is suddenly a sense of certainty, of having found the truth, creating a general aura around him that he knows, end quote. Whether a group of Indians really fell at his feet or not, Baker returned from India with that very sense of certainty. He was no longer bound by any particular belief. He was the source of belief the very spiritual father he had sought for decades. And what was more, Baker had a stable of intensely devoted followers waiting for him when he got back. While Baker was away, Robin had stepped up to work with the manager of the restaurant, and with the cooperation of the staff, they'd pulled the source out of debt. Not only was the restaurant making money again, but the act of saving it had brought Robin and the staff even closer together than they'd been before. Robin and the workers at Jim Baker's restaurant now referred to themselves as the Source family, and the role of father was waiting. Baker, seeing his opportunity at last, broke ties with Bajan for good. He also took a new name, combining what some of his followers had already been calling him, Father, with the first letter of the Hebrew name for God. From this point forward, Jim Baker would be Father Yod, the man chosen by God to father a new, enlightened human race. Next week, we'll follow Father Yod as he builds his tight-knit cult tucked away in the Hollywood Hills. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. We'll be back with part two of The Source Family next Tuesday. You can find more episodes of Cults, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast, and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time.
Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Cults is written by Megan Dane and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson.